Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel uh, 27. We continue our walk through the book of 1 Samuel. It's good to be back. Grateful for the opportunity to have some time off and grateful for the opportunity to be back. Grateful for those who filled the pulpit for me. Um, I have a great team and, and very grateful for them and Pastor Ryan and uh, Reach Church. Uh, they just completed their v- VBS this week and had a great week of ministry and a lot of outreach and kids who came to faith in Christ, trusted in Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior. So Reach Church, we're grateful you're joining us this morning in the venue service right down the hall. First Samuel 27, as we left off last week, Pastor Ryan did a great job of demonstrating how uh, another opportunity arises for Saul to, to take the kingdom by force, uh, to eliminate uh, Saul, and certainly uh, Abishai wanted to. Uh, give me one shot. All I need is one shot. I got him. And then you can be king. And David says, we're not going to lay hands on God's man. We're going to trust God. We're going to leave it with God. And what a great decision. And you remember, it brings great conviction um, in Saul's life. Saul makes a great declaration. David, you're going to win. You're going to be king. And again, David, uh, time and time again, has been told, you're going to be king. It's been declared by Samuel. It's been declared by Saul. It's uh, been declared through Abigail. And, uh, and so Saul goes his way, David goes his way, and you would expect to pick up in chapter 7, and, and David continues to flourish in a place of faithfulness and trust in the Lord and joy and the peace and security of Christ will be upon him as he rests in the promises of God. And that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> We're going to see very quickly in verse 1, David says, I'm going to die. You ever been there? You've been in a spiritual high, a place of great confidence in God, and then... Very quickly, you could turn around and look to your circumstances and say, God's all over. Remember, Elijah did the same thing. The prophets of Baal and achieved great victory, incredible victory. And then very quickly after, as Jezebel pursues him, I'm going to die. You know what we find in David? A man just like us. He's weak. He's frail as he's following the Lord. And yet God is going to work in this weak man in his mistakes and in his messes to bring about his perfect purposes. Well, with that in mind, let's go, Lord, in prayer, and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We count it a great joy and a great privilege to uh, gather around the truth and the fire of your word. It's the plumb line of our lives. And so, Lord... um, Pray that you would help us to set aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice. May we come with humble, teachable hearts. Lord, protect us from thinking about somebody else. But help us this morning to evaluate our own lives in light of your truth. To be encouraged, to be changed. That's our desire today to renew our minds through the truth of your word. And Lord, if there be anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that the light of the gospel would shine into their hearts today and change them, cause them to be reborn through faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. Verse 1 of chapter 27, then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel and I'll escape from his hand. 
So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the Carmelites, Nabigail, or Nabal's widow. We come to this and we see David right there in verse 1. Uh, surely I'm going to die. Surely I'm going to perish. Um, and it's certainly not true. Why? Because God has declared to him, you will be king. So how in the world does David get to a place after great spiritual victory and faithfulness and Saul walking away and going his way, how does he come to a place of such despair and discouragement? I think we find it right there in the very first phrase of verse 1, and David said to himself. David starts talking to himself, normally not good. I do a little bit of that myself, talking to himself. And I think what this really implies is not necessarily talking out loud, although that might be the case. It really implies that David begins to think upon the circumstances that he finds himself in. His mind begins to fixate on the physical, earthly circumstances around him. Now, we want to be careful here because thinking upon things is very good. Certainly, when we're thinking about making decisions and, and walking with the Lord, walking with Christ, we walk by faith, but that doesn't mean that we disengage our minds. It's important. God has given us a brain. We have some Holy Spirit-inspired common sense, as I like to call it, that enables us to evaluate situations and make wise decisions. Thinking is a good thing. In fact, it was Margaret Thatcher in her latter years, she went to the doctor and the doctor said to her, Margaret, how are you feeling today? And she was indignant. Feelings? Who cares about feelings? Everybody's obsessed with feelings. Feelings don't matter. I'll tell you what's important. You should be asking me, what am I thinking? Because thinking determines character, and character determines actions. We ought to be a thinking people. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that it's not enough just to say that we're thinking. The question is, what are we thinking on? And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we're to set our hearts and our minds upon the truth of God's word. We're to set our mind on the things of heaven, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Paul will tell the Philippians, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, what is trustworthy, whatever's praiseworthy, think on these things. And the problem is, as we get into life, more often than not, we begin to think more upon our circumstances than we, the, the God we serve. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, set your mind not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And I think in that context, he's telling you to set your, your gaze, if you read in the context of 2 Corinthians 4, set your gaze upon the glory of Christ. This will be, I, I guarantee you today, if you go home and just begin to ponder all of your life circumstances, you're probably going to be very discouraged. But I'll also guarantee you, if you will go home today and read God's word and in prayer, if you'll fix your mind on God and the glory of Christ, you will be encouraged. 
this is what I've learned as well. The more I make God great in my mind, the more my problems begin to seem very small. But if I turn the telescope around and fixate on my problems, they become big and God becomes small. You may have heard it said, it said this way, we need to stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. And so David, I think, likely begins, just like us, begins to fixate on his circumstances and it's pretty discouraging because even though Saul's gone away, what does David know? There's no real repentance. There's no real heart change here. I've seen this, I've seen this before. And he'll come again and he's gonna pursue me and he's, he's gonna be after me. It's relentless. And David is hiding, probably exhausted, probably not even eating very well, on the run constantly. It's not a good situation. Uh, more than this, you'll see in this passage, there's 600 men with him. And that means the army of David is not growing. Initially, it was growing, wasn't it? He's at the cave of Adullam, and people start coming to him, and that was probably incredibly encouraging. Boy, we're growing. The people of God is growing. This little army's growing. God's rebirthing a new nation. It's fun. It's exciting. But then it all of a sudden, it begins to stagnate. And I wonder if David did, doesn't begin to think to himself, you know what? I thought at this point more people would have defected from Saul and come over to my side. He's probably beginning to wonder, is this it? Is this all the men? And, and beyond this, he's got 600 men, but we, we make note here that it starts to include all the people that are surrounding him. And so it's wives and children. And, and so most commentators believe that the group of people there is probably over 2,000 people. And David, as a shepherd, as a leader, guess what? The burden of providing and protecting these people is on his shoulders. And he begins to get weighed down on that. Even, even as I was thinking about that, I remember after I had been pastor here for about a year and uh, I'd always been in very small churches and, and come here and I remember driving the parking lot uh, one day and the parking lot is full of cars and I'm thinking, what event is occurring today? What, what do we have? I didn't know we had anything going on. And then it hit me, those are staff. <laughs> and listen, it just kind of hit me. Boy, my stupidity could affect a lot of people here. I think David looks at this and says, I'm just a man. And I got all these people and their security and provision is resting upon my shoulders and all of this just begins to weigh heavy upon him. And instead of fixing his mind on the God that he serves and the God that's come through for him time and time again, he begins to focus more upon the circumstances. It's Peter walking on the water, isn't it? And as long as his gaze is fixed upon Christ, he's fine. But the more he begins to be distracted by the waves, he begins to sink. So David, he's discouraged. In the midst of that discouragement, he's going to make a decision. And he decides to defect from Judah and to go over to the enemy, to go over to Philistia. Not the first time he's done this. Remember, very early on, he did the same thing and had to act like a crazy man to get him out of that circumstance. But a lot of time has passed, and certainly the Philistines understand that the relationship between him and Saul is not good. And so David makes a decision, I, I'm gonna go to Felicia. And it's interesting to me, if you, you read the commentators, most of them are incredibly harsh towards David in this decision to go to Gath. 
most would label it an act of faithlessness or even an act of disobedience. And initially, as I was reading that, yeah, that sounds about right. But the more I began to ponder this, the more I began to look at this, I'm not so sure. Is it an act of faith or is it an act of disobedience? And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm not going to tell you exactly where I land. And you'll have to decide for yourself as you study God's word. But the implication even with that is that I don't think this text explicitly says that David going to Gath was disobedience, evil, or sinful. Um, the, the closest does David have a command if we just look at this from a biblical basis the word of God that has come to David is there anything about him leaving that is unbiblical the closest that you can come is when David was in the cave of Adullam Gad the prophet shows up and says go back to Judah but, but a long time has passed since that occurrence And so is it an act of disobedience or is it an act of faith and let me tell you going to Gath took a lot of faith, a lot of faith. I mean, we look at this and initially we, we read those stories so much, we, we bypass them so quickly. Listen to me, uh, David, if he stays in Judah, if he stays in Judah, David's got a group of 2,000 people with him, an army of 600, and, and Saul's got spies everywhere. Everybody's turning him in. The guy can't go anywhere without somebody finding him unless he's hiding in the recesses of a cave, which is not long-term sustainable. David knows if he stays in Judah, eventually he's going to encounter Saul and there's going to be a battle. And if there's a battle, there's a good chance David's going to win. And if David wins, Saul is going to die. And you know what will be said of David? He took the kingdom by force. He took it on force, and, and, and it'll be a blemish upon his reign. And so I think in many ways, David, in going to uh, Philistia, going to Gath, is saying to God, God, I'm going to put myself in a position where you're, you're going to have to deal with Saul. I'm not going to lay hands on the guy. I'm going to put myself in a position where he won't even come after me anymore, and I'm going to leave him in your hands and trust you to take care of him. David also has to trust that the, the Philistines aren't going to kill him or harm his people, that God will protect them there. And, you know, I I tell you, the more I thought about this, I say, David, that's a gutsy move on your part. I can't wait to talk to him about it. A lot of these guys, I'm going to say, all these guys were bad-mouthing you. I'm, I'm pretty impressed, actually. But here's the bigger issue. The decision that David faces, I think, in many ways, is most like a lot of the decisions that we face. You see, the decision that David has here is not between, necessarily between good and evil. Uh, It's not, this is immoral, unbiblical, and this is biblical. It's a left and right decision. It's a, a better or best decision. And would we not all agree, that's the vast majority of the decisions we make in life. They're not between what's good and evil, moral or immoral. It's between what's better and what's best. And there's no specific word of God that gives us clarity on what we should do. And we, we think through those things and we, we pray through those things and we seek to make the best decision we, we possibly can. And, and as I evaluated this, I think there's at least a couple of things we can see from David that should help us as we make those decisions. Number one, if you look at this, David is going to make his decision in the place of exhaustion and ex- discouragement. Listen to me, whenever you're making a major life-altering decision, even when it's better and best, don't make that decision out of a place of discouragement and exhaustion. 
make sure you have slept well and prayed a lot. Uh, you remember Elijah, same thing. Elijah, great victory at Carmel, and then Jezebel's after him, I'm gonna die. I, it's all over God, nobody even with me. And what does God say? He takes Elijah off to a hidden place and says what? Take a nap. Take a breather. Rest a little bit. And then he wakes up and God feeds him. And he's not exhausted and he's refreshed by the care of God. And then from that, he'll gain new perspective and move forward. Not a good idea to make a decision out of a place of exhaustion and discouragement. And secondly, note this. If you've read ahead, you know this about chapter 7. God's name is not mentioned. Um, I don't know. Sometimes scripture doesn't give us all the details. But we know this in, in almost every other occasion in David's life where he comes against a big decision. We see the guy, whether it's through the Urim and Thummim or the prophet or just in prayer. But David will seek the heart of God fervently to know exactly what God wants him to do. But not in this instance. And let me tell you something. In the decisions that you make, especially in the better and best decisions of your life, Lean heavy upon God in prayer. Seek him. That God does have ways of giving us peace and, and giving us direction about the decisions that we should make. So certainly we can see we don't make decisions out of exhaustion or discouragement. We better seek the Lord fervently. And as I look at that, I would tell you where I've kind of come down is that uh, I would say, David, maybe he didn't make the best decision. Although I don't even know really what the alternative would have been or the outcomes or the implications of that. But here's what I would tell you. Even if we look at this and say this wasn't the best decision David could have made, is God still going to use David, bless his life, and bring about great things in the midst of a decision that might not have been best? Yes, he is. See, here's the foundational truth that we rest upon in the better and best decisions because I've been there. And listen, I've had these decisions between better and best and you're doing your best to pray about these things and pray and seek and it still doesn't seem clear and you can almost get to a place where you're paralyzed and you won't even make a decision because you're afraid. If I take that road, it's gonna mess up God's plans for my life, my family, and the world. Let me tell you something, the underlying truth of this passage is praise God, his purposes in your life, in your family, and in this world is not dependent upon you being perfect in every decision you make in your life. Isn't that a very freeing thing today? That we serve a God who is gracious and good and sovereign. And he is able and not, doesn't have his hands tied on the basis of every perfect decision in our life. Man, and, and let me just tell you this too. The other thing it taught me, I was reading all these commentators being really harsh on David, and I thought, boy, I'm glad these commentators aren't evaluating all the decisions in my life. Oh boy, you wanna do a deep dive on idiocy, study my life. And I ain't joking. You ever been there? You look at your life and say, boy, you can look back on it. And hindsight's always 20-20, isn't it? And you can see, boy, if I'd made a left decision there instead of a right decision, I'd save myself all this. And I just wanted to encourage, be careful about judging or Monday morning quarterbacking somebody else's decisions. 
You don't know the circumstances they're going through. You don't know what they're in the midst of. And certainly when, when it comes to immorality and sin, we can judge that. And the left and right decisions. Let's be gracious with each other. As we're all kind of groping in the dark, seeking to follow God, and we rest in a God who's gracious with us. So David makes a decision. He goes to Gath. And if you look in verse 4, now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. In the short run, David, what he does here in his decision, it's successful in achieving what he desired. Saul is not going to look for him anymore. And we have to be careful, though, when, we, when we're evaluating a decision and, and its faithfulness to God. Short-term, immediate success is not always a good indicator as to whether or not we've been faithful to God. Because we all know that you can walk in sin and disobedience, and immediately, in the short term, it might work out well for you. But long-term... If you, sow, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption every time. You're going to reap destruction every time. And so it's not a good indicator. We would just say that at least in this, God is protecting David in the short run. So he goes, Saul stops pursuing, and in verse five, then David said to Achish, if now I've found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities of the country that I may live there, for why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So David, it appears that he's living in close proximity, maybe even the same household as Achish. He's living with him in this close proximity, probably sharing a lot of meals with him, he and his family. And what do we know about the Philistines? What do we know about this king? They're into all kinds of idolatry, the worship of Dagon and Molech and all these other gods and, and eating and fellowship and that kind of way always involved those idols in some shape or form. And it appears that, that as David get, gets there, as a believer in the one true God of Yahweh, he becomes very uncomfortable comfortable with this living situation. Uh, David says, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in Philistia, but I'm not of Philistia. That's us, right? That we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we, can, we, can, we have to have acquaintances with non-believers in this world, don't we? We're, we're in the world. We're, we're called to reach the world. We, we go amongst non-believers. We're around non-believers. We engage with them. But, but scripture is also very clear that our closest friends, the, the people we live in close proximity to, the, the people that we spend the majority of our time around need to be believers in Jesus Christ who are pulling in the same direction. Otherwise, we will end up in a place of compromise. Because here's the, the thought of so many people, they, they got a group of friends and they, they want to fit in, they want to fit in in that group and they, they love the fellowship of that group, but they're not believers, but I'm going to go among them and I'm going to be an influence upon them. And yet what do we know? More often than not, we won't influence them, they'll end up influencing us. David knew this. David understood that 
Our family, me, I can't live amongst these people in this kind of way. I need some separation. And so he asked the king for a separate place, and the king says, I'll give you a ziklag. And so they've got a place now that they can go to, and they can separate themselves from. They're still in Felicia. They're going to interact with them, but they have a place of separation where they're going to have the freedom to worship God and encourage one another. It's very similar to when the Israelites went into Egypt during the famine with Joseph and his brothers. And, 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 but God set them apart, didn't he, in a land called Goshen. And he kind of uh, quarantines them from the Egyptians and the influence of their idolatry. And here God gives David and this new budding nation uh, a, a place of separation to protect them from the idolatry of the Philistines. And what's so interesting about this is Ziklag was on the original hit list of cities that was given to Israel when they entered into the promised land. And yet, although Ziklag was given to Israel as they went into the land, Israel never occupied, or Israel never occupied Ziklag. And so by God giving David Ziklag, he's fulfilling a promise that God made to Israel years and years before. And so regardless, I love this, because regardless of how you take David's decision in going to Gath and leaving Israel, is God working in it to fulfill his promises? Yes, he is. God is fulfilling a promise as David even is here in exile. So David separates, gets the people together. Look at what it says in verse eight. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. So David gets over in this place of separation and ziklag and uh, David does what the king of Israel is supposed to do. He attacks the enemies of God's people, the Canaanites. All these groups that are mentioned here are Canaanites. The Amalekites had a special place of judgment in the mind of God and the people of Israel. But all of them were Canaanites. And you remember that when uh, God sent Joshua and the people into the promised land. The Canaanites were the inhabitants there. And what did God say about the inhabitants and the Canaanites? He said, you eliminate all of them. And we're not gonna get into discussion today about holy war, we don't have time. But just know this, the Canaanites, as a result of the, the vileness and, and, and the, the, the vileness and the immorality of their lifestyle, God says, you give those folks back to me. They're under the judgment of God. And you eliminate them, and you don't leave any of them. Why did God not want to leave them? Because God knew. You leave those Canaanites in the land, they're going to start influencing you with their idolatry. And guess what? Israel didn't eliminate them. The Canaanites abided in the land, and what ended up happening? They influenced the people of Israel, and their idolatry would impact Israel throughout the Old Testament, motivating the people of God to idolatry and unfaithfulness. But here, David, as he gets into Ziklag and he has the opportunity to fight the enemies of God, he goes out and does it. And so in that way, he is actually fulfilling a commandment given to Joshua years prior in the completion of God's purposes. So in that way, he's being faithful to commandment of God. Now, now we're going to find out very quickly there's also a selfish motivation behind it. We're going to kill all of them. <laughs> And it sounds pretty harsh, and it is. But why? What's the, what's the primary motivation in David kill all of them? Because if I leave any alive, they'll be witness to my activity. But here is David in place of exile, God working, fulfilling his purposes. Look at 
uh, verse 10. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the uh, Jeremelites and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, here's the underlying motivation, otherwise they'll tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time that he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So David's been going out and killing Amalekites and killing uh, Geshurites and killing Canaanites. And Achish comes to him one day and says, David, where'd you go today? And uh, listen, David doesn't want to tell him what he's been doing. Why? Because if he tells him he's been killing Canaanites, uh, Achish is going to realize this guy hadn't changed. And if he'll kill Canaanites, oh, he don't have any problem killing Philistines, and he's done it in the past. And David knows there's a chance that Achish would say, we're just going to kill you. So David is in a bad spot, and where you been? Well, I've been to the Negev against the Kenites. Now, Negev is a very general, that's a big region. It'd be like, say, where'd you go today? Well, I went to the Rocky Mountains. Well, that's pretty big. That's pretty vague. Uh, David, I've been to Negev. He's very general. He's not giving all the information, but he gives just enough with the Kenites, and there's some technicalities. He's doing this in such a way so that if he's called on the carpet about it, he thinks that maybe I could get out on a technicality. You ever done that? You don't want to give all the information. Uh, You want to give just enough information to paint yourself in a positive light and leave yourself an out just in case somebody calls you on the carpet. So I don't want to give too much specifics. Some would call it deception. Can I tell you what it is? It's lying. It's lying. David is, is lying through his teeth so as to protect his own skin. It's a sad deal. Some would say, well, he's in the midst of war and there's persecution. He could have endangered the entire people. Yeah, that's possible. Listen to me. (laughs) A lie is still a lie. And it's sin. And what's interesting is Achish believes him. Look at the last verse, verse 12. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious amongst his people Israel. Because see, the implication by including the Kenites and some of these other groups, he, he's, he's implying, it's not true, but he's implying to the king of Achish that I've been killing Israelites. And uh, Achish says, boy, if he's killing Israelites, that means he's on our team. He's with us. If that's, he, he's made himself odious, he sure is with us. Verse 28, in fact, you've got to read on to the first part of chapter 28. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. (laughs) It's interesting. Achish says, well, man, you like killing Israelites? Hey, you enjoy that, huh? Well, I'll give you a great opportunity. You can go with us, and you can fight with us, and you can kill Israelites. In fact, you'll be my personal bodyguard. And David says, oh, good. Then I'll have a chance to show you what I can do. David doesn't have a clue what he's going to show him. David is what you call up a creek without a paddle. See, this is the problem with telling lies you got to keep telling lies, don't you? And you paint yourself in a corner. And God's not going to let him out of this one. You want to present yourself as killing Israelites? Well, what's going to happen now when 
Akish says, come with me and I'll give you a chance to kill him in front of me. And you're left on the verge of your seat saying, what's going to happen? And God's going to say, breaking news. We've got to go check on Saul first. And you got the witch indoor. Come back next week. It's a Halloween message. <laughs> but you look at this. The first thing, a couple of questions you got to ask yourself if you look at this text. Number one, David goes to Gath. It's an odd passage. And the first question I think you got to ask yourself was it wasted time in Gath? Was, was David's time in Gath, was it wasted time? Well, let me tell you a couple things that will influence your outlook on that. Number one, know this. Before this event, before this event takes place, whenever God pronounces judgment upon the Philistines, there are five great cities of the Philistines. Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, Gaza, uh, Ekron, and Gath. Those are the five great cities of the Philistines. Prior to this, whenever God pronounces judgment upon the Philistines, he includes all five cities. After this incident, it only includes four. And guess which one it leaves out? Gath. What's interesting is we're gonna get to 1 Samuel 29 in a few months. And uh, that's a joke, we'll get there. 1 Samuel 29, verse 16 and Achish, king of the Philistines, will make an oath with David in the name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. In fact, he'll call David an angel of God to him. Did Achish convert to being a one true a worshiper, the one true God of Israel, Yahweh? We don't know for sure. But certainly it made a lasting impact on Achish and certainly it impacted God's view of this city, Gath. We also know that in 1 Chronicles 12, chapter 1, uh, during this incident, there was a whole group of men from the city of Ziklag that go over and join David's army and become a part of God, uh, David's mighty men. Was it a waste of time in Gath? No, it was not. You may disagree with David's decision. In the midst of David's decision, he may make a whole lot of messes and he might not be perfect, but God is still using him in the midst of it to accomplish his purposes. I, I, when I first started reading this passage, I thought, Lord, what in the world are we gonna do with this? You know, that's the, the blessing, the burden of just preaching through scripture is you can't skip these passages. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I really want to skip next week, uh, but we're going to do it. Who knows what you get, but David, defecting, going to the enemy, I don't think we can fully comprehend that idea in our minds. Joining up with the enemy of God's people. Mass murder. Killing everybody. Yes, fulfillment of God and his commandment given to Joshua, but it's clear here, David of his own admission is doing it, why? To save his own skin. And lying, blatant lying. You know, so many ways we've seen how David is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He pictures Jesus for us. So many times we've seen this, haven't we? David is a picture of Jesus. 
But you know what I've realized again as I've been studying this over the past few weeks? More often than not, David is a picture of us. David is justified, redeemed on the basis of faith. David is a Christian. Psalm 16, David would say, my heart is glad and my flesh rejoices because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Holy One, who is he referring to there? Peter says he looked forward and spoke of Christ, the one who would not decay, the one who death wouldn't defeat. David wasn't talking about himself. David died. David knew he was a sinner. David was placing his faith and his hope in one person, Jesus Christ. David was a believer, and through faith in Jesus Christ, he was justified, he was redeemed, he was made right with God. But at the same time, David was still a sinner. A man justified and redeemed by God, but still capable of sinning and making mistakes and messes. Does that remind you of anybody? Reminds me a lot of myself. Justified and redeemed by God and yet every day struggling with my own sinful flesh. And the great encouragement of this passage is that God loves using messed up sinners to do his work. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that good God shown in our hearts We saw the face of Jesus. You know what I picture? The face of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, and the light of the gospel illumine our hearts, and we trust in him. But then guess what it says? And we have this treasure. I love the way that Paul says this. We have this treasure. Those of us, the light showed in our hearts that we've trusted Christ, we have a treasure, amen. Not we will have a treasure. Not we might have a treasure or we used to have a treasure. If you know Jesus Christ today, you have a treasure in Jesus Christ. It's in you. It's the light of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Not vessels of gold. Cheap. Broken. Jars of clay. Why? So the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. See, the beauty of this is we look at David and and there's no way we can say, boy, look at what David accomplished. He is perfect. That guy never sins. The man, he is awesome. He's got perfect knowledge and wisdom. He never makes a mistake, never takes a wrong turn. Look at what he did. No, you read these stories. Some people, they read these stories of David and they get disappointed. I'm telling you, studying David has lessened him <laughs> to some extent. 
but while it's lessened David in my eyes, it's heightened my love of God. Because what I see in this is, wow, what an amazing God we serve. That he can do this through this guy. And it encourages me. God can do that in David's life. What might he do in mine? And it reminds us all, we read these stories. It doesn't matter if it's Samuel or David or Joseph or Daniel. We remind, we remind ourselves, God reminds us that there's only one hero in the story. David is not the hero because David is not the savior. God's only had two perfect people to work with. Adam, that didn't last very long, did it? And Jesus. And Jesus is God. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. He's the only one who always said no to sin and yes to God, who lived perfect in every way and died on a cross for our sins and was placed in a tomb and defeated the grave as a verification that he is who he said he was. He is God's promised Messiah. And all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our joy and all of our security rest in him alone. Listen to me today. I don't know who you admire in your life, what great heroes you study in the Bible. Don't put any of them on a pedestal except Jesus Christ because everyone else will let you down. But only Jesus is perfect. And we walk by faith and we make mistakes and regrets and messes. And all the while, you know why, (laughs) you've heard me say this before, why, why do we have sin? Why, why do dogs have fleas? To remind them they're dogs. Why do we still struggle with sin to remind us we're sinners? The great key to the Christian life is humility. I have realized this, the lower I go, the more God becomes great. And so we just say, God, help us to trust you more. In fact, I would say to you, I think if David were put put a song to the end of this story as he's in 27 and he's in a bad spot, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm about to go into battle. I can't lay my hands on Israelites. I don't know how this is gonna turn out. If he were to put a song to it, you know what I think he'd sing? Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. And I just picture David praying. Oh, give me the grace to trust you even more. Lord, we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts to trust you more. We find ourselves in circumstances and situations. I'm sure there's some people today, they're, they're, they're like David. They're in a place. They don't know what to do. 
right or left. They've evaluated on the basis of your word. They've sought you in prayer and they still find themselves in a place of uncertainty. God, through David, we're reminded that, that life is not always straightforward. It's not always clean or clear. It's difficult. It's hard. God, I pray that today, wherever we're at, we would just rest in a God who loves us. A God whose purposes in our life are not dependent upon us being perfect in every decision. God, you know you're not working with perfect people. You know we'll, we'll, we'll make mistakes. You, you know we'll, we'll take some wrong turns. But God, you supersede all that. And you work in the midst of it. And no matter where we go, nothing is wasted in your economy. You grow us, you teach us, you use us as we continue to lean upon you. Lord, I pray for the person that's here this morning that doesn't know you. God, as we study your word, I pray that they would know today. We, we, we dive deep on David's life and we, he's a hero of the faith. We, we love him in so many ways. He pictures Christ, but pray that they would know today that there's only one hero of Scripture from beginning to end, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who is eternal and the one who is God, Jesus, your Messiah, who died on the cross for our sins. And I pray, Lord, that just as it was for those of us that know you, you would shine the light of your gospel into their heart. You would convict them of sin. They would look into the face of Jesus who gave his life for them and you would become so great in your love and in your grace that laying down their life would be an easy decision. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.